Good afternoon, and welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Richard Dietz, and joining me on the panel today are Judge Jeff Carpenter and Judge Jefferson Griffin. We're also joined in the courtroom by our clerk, Roderick McFarland, and by Deputy Marshal Richard Remillards. Thank you both for being here today. And we have one case on the calendar. That's number 22305, DeVore v. Samuel. We've confirmed the parties are ready to proceed, so we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court, my name is Hope Root, and with me is my colleague, Melissa Woods. We are representing the appellant in this matter, Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education. Um, I will be presenting the argument on the um, Tort Claims Act and Rule 14C Impleter, and Ms. Woods will be uh, presenting the argument on the uh, governmental immunity, and we would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Um, for ease of discussion, in our arguments today, we will be referring to the appellant as the board and to the appellee as kinder care. Um, if the court would like, I can provide a quick recitation of the facts. Um, the, in this case, a minor plaintiff, through her guardian, filed a lawsuit in state court. And in this state court, um, she, she sued for injuries incurred when she was crossing the street from her school bus stop to kinder care learning center. In the initial complaint filed in the state court, uh, kinder, um, the board was not a party, nor was the uh, board's bus driver. Uh, Kindercare was one of the defendants, however, and they filed a third-party complaint. And in that third-party complaint, they named the board as a uh, third-party defendant, and they also named the bus driver, Kiara Gordon. Ms. Gordon is being represented by the Attorney General's Office in this matter. Um, in its third-party complaint, the claims are brought under the theories of contribution among tortfeasors and um, indemnity. And the underlying claims were negligence in the operation of the school bus, which I will name the bus operation claim, as well as other claims of negligence against the board. And those were um, negligent design of school bus routes, negligent training of bus drivers, negligent failure to enact policies or ensure that policies were, fo were followed. And I will refer to those claims as administrative claims. The board filed this motion to dismiss under Rules 12 in the trial court under Rules 12b1, 12b2, and 12b6, and um, asked that the, uh, that the lawsuit against the board be dismissed on jurisdictional grounds. The first jurisdictional grounds was that only the Industrial Commission has um, jurisdiction to hear the uh, bus operation claim against the board, which is not a state agency, and that we were entitled to governmental immunity on the administrative negligence claims and the um, claims of contribution and um, indemnity. The trial court denied the board's motion and provided no basis, no specific basis for that denial, so we appealed both of those claims to this court. Uh, Your Honors, the North Carolina, in North Carolina, county boards of education can only be liable for tort in two ways. One, through the statutory waiver of immunity under the Tort Claims Act, or two, through a waiver of governmental immunity through the purchase of liability insurance. There could be a third way, right? We don't typically talk about it in our cases, but the state could also say uh, that that governmental immunity is waived 
for some other reason, and then it would be, right? It's ultimately the state and our legislature that chooses, you know, what branches or arms of the state are going to be immune to what. Do you agree with that? I, I do agree with that. Because I think your, your friend for the appellee is going to argue that's, that's what this case is, that there's, uh, there is a scenario where you can bring the state into this case, and then there's a statute that says this is, you're the state. So, you know, you just connect the dots here, and that's why the board can be brought into the case. So what, what's wrong with that argument? Well, I, I think the, um, with all due respect, I think that the, um, the problem with that argument is that the General Assembly showed its specific intent to only include the state and its agency under Rule 14 of the North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure under Rule 14C. And that was enacted in, in 1975. And as I think the um, Tichy versus um, Coble Dairy's case is very instructional in that. I think it shows that the, um, in that case, the Supreme Court recognized that indemnity and contribution are often brought as third-party claims. And those are claims for money damages. Um, and so um, there was, in 1981, I believe, they went through the history of the Tort Claims Act in, in Tichy, and they said um, one of the um, they did, in 1981, there was a, an act to clarify the Tort Claims Act. So the General Assembly had two chances to include local boards of education um, or all claims under the Tort Claims Act in Rule 14C, and they did not do that. And, uh, Your Honor, the General Assembly So would you not agree, suppose there was a state law, a legislature passed a law that said for purposes of, um, of Rule 14, County boards of education shall be considered the state, that your argument would fail in that case. Yes, Your Honor. So uh, what you're really arguing is what, that the language that your friend for the appellee is going to say makes you the state is, uh, doesn't actually say that. Is that your position? That's exactly right. And, and I believe that the case law holds that up. In, in, their, um, in their brief, the um, kinder care says, Many times and in various ways, in, in, from pages 10 to page 27, that local boards of education should be considered or treated as if they are the state or the state agencies, but in fact they're not. And it's but also, they are pointing to a statute when they're, for their basis for that, at least as I understood their argument, aren't they? Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't hear I said they are pointing to a statute to make that argument, aren't they? Yes, they are, Your Honor. They're pointing to the statute. Um, they're pointing to uh, actually um, the, the two statutes. They're pointing to the Tort Claims Act, I believe, and they're pointing to uh, Statute 143-300.1 as well as 297. Um, but I think there's, uh, I, I think that argument fails based on the case law, and they're also arguing legislative intent, and I think that um, they're saying because the uh, local board of local boards of education are liable for monetary damages, that that shows that's one of the ways that it shows that the state um, that the local boards are indeed part of the state. However, a more careful reading of the Tort Claims Act, um, if you go to 143-300.1c, it actually states that neither the county 
nor, or city boards of education shall be liable for the payment of any award made pursuant to the provisions of this action. And um, the argument of the board, Your Honor, is that the, um, that also shows legislative intent because since, as Tichi said, since contribution and indemnity uh, claims are typically for monetary damages, I think that shows that they did not include the local boards of education because they don't anticipate the local boards of education being brought in. As a matter of fact, um, there is only one pot of money for claims under the Tort Claims Act, and that is set out within there with the Attorney General voucher and the expect expense fund formula. And so um, I, I think it was the General Assembly's intent not to include local boards of education in Rule 14C, and that's why they specifically said the state and its agency. And I believe in order for this court to find that, um, to affirm the trial court's ruling, that this panel will have to decide that the Board of Education is the state or an agency of the state. And I do not believe that given the strict construction surrounding um, um, statutory construction surrounding statutes that are clear and unambiguous and the exact language that the general um, that the general assembly intended for it only to be limited to the state and to um, local I mean sorry and its agencies and not to include local boards of education the, um, I, the North Carolina Supreme Court um, uh, to your to your point, um, the North Carolina Supreme Court has, has um, stated that local boards of education were separate from the State Board of Education and were not state agency. And, and they did that as far back as 1959 in the Turner versus Gastonia City Board of Education case. Again, in 2016, in the um, Irving versus Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education case. And as recently as 2021, in the Stein versus Kinston Charter Academy case, they have made that distinction between uh, the State Board of Education and local boards of education, and 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 said that um, they were not not state agencies. Um, and despite what my friends on the opposite side say Rule 14C limits third-party complaints to the state courts and their state agencies, and um, and this court found in Martinez that um, reading the Tort Claims Act to include administrative claims would require this court to rewrite um, the statute and addressed public policy arguments against governmental immunity and it says more appropriately dress addressed to the legislature. Well, I, I understood their argument to be that because the statute says that the, the State Board of Education, of course, is the state, and because the statute said, uh, it says that the, that the county boards in this scenario, shall in all respects be treated the same as the state board. That that was, I think your friend's argument is, that is the state saying we're making, you know, we, we can make the rules however we want, and what we're going to say is the county boards can be brought in 
um, to these actions as third-party defendants. So what, what's wrong with their interpretation of that language? Their interpretation, what's wrong with that interpretation, Your Honor, is that's actually not what the state said, what the statute says. It says it will not be treated, um, I, I don't believe it says it will be treated the same in all different respects. It talks about some procedural matters within the Industrial Commission. So there are some procedural matters that are, are treated the same. But um, it also says they will be treated the same um, um, except as, let me pull out my, get the exact wording for you. 143.300.1 says um, that the liability of the county or city board of education and the defenses that may be asserted are the same um, as the state, but it does not say that it is the state or a state agency. It actually says they will be, um, they will be asserted in the same way except as here and after provided. And it is after that, Your Honor, where they talk um, about the difference with the uh, local boards of education not being, um, in, in Section C, they say that local boards of education will not be liable for monetary damages. And it, and the Rule 14C specifically limits it to the state and its agencies. And I believe the reason they point out the differences within this statute and within the whole Tort Claims Act is because they do have, they do see the local boards of education as separate. So while the Attorney General um, they, they also lay the procedural foundation for the Industrial Commission. But 14C says in order to bring it into state trial court through a third-party complaint, it has to be, um, it has to have, it has to be a state or its agency that gets brought in because that's the exception. And, and it doesn't include all of the claims in the Tort Claims Act. It's simply um, limited, and as I said, I believe that is intentional, and I believe that legislative intent appears within that statute. And again, um, tort, uh, these statutes are, are very clearly written um, in, and the legislature has had a lot of opportunity to say that under Rule 14C, it would include local boards of education, and that simply hasn't been done. Um, and statutes waiving governmental immunity, in particular, um, have to be strictly construed. And bringing in a statutory waiver of governmental immunity under the Tort Claims Act, it must be strictly construed. And that's why I believe uh, 143.300.1 lays out all of those um, the differences with the local boards of education. So do you, do you think Kindercare can bring the same, the claim they've attempted to assert in this action in the Industrial Commission? I do, Your Honor. I believe they can. However, um, the bus driver is within the state court. And whether they recover against the bus driver, it, if there's liability found, if there's negligence found, against the bus driver, um, and or if they bring the claim in the Industrial Commission, I don't think that the ending will be the same because there is that statutory cap on damages with the, um, on monetary damages with the 
uh, set forth in the Tort Claims Act. So I believe that they can. Yes, Your Honor. Um, so if you have no more questions for me, I will um, step away and let my colleague take the lectern. All right. Thank you, Counsel. Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the Court, my name is Melissa Woods and I represent the Board. This Court should reverse the decision of the trial court because KinderCare's claims for contribution and indemnification cannot overcome the defense of government immunity or the limitations set forth in Rule 14C. North Carolina General Statutes 115C-42 permits a school board to waive government immunity. But because that waiver impacts such a substantial right, the statute must be construed strict, uh, strictly and given its plain meaning. The plain meaning and language uh, provides in that statute are, is that the school board is not, will not be liable in tort or negligent except one, through the purchase of liability insurance, or two, that liability insurance covers the specific tort or negligent claim. Neither is applicable here because the board has not waived its immunity for any of the tort claims filed by KinderCare. As this court is very well aware, a self-retention policy which must be triggered prior to uh, payment by an excess insurance policy does not constitute a waiver of government immunity under 115C-42. What about the argument that, that in this case, what has happened is that the government purchased, you know, that your client purchased insurance. It's just it purchased it by creating, um, you know, putting taxpayer dollars in a fund, self-insured retention that is essentially designed to insure against this liability. Your Honor, KinderCare has argued that we, the board has immediate coverage because of the purchase of that policy, but that is erroneous because this court has found multiple times that the self-retention policy uh, does not trigger coverage. Um, last year, a panel of this court reviewed over 14 years of history as it relates to governmental immunity, and this court has a long history of upholding government immunity. Even though the Caps versus Cumberland case uh, was an unpublished opinion, I would submit to your honors that it is the most persuasive authority on this issue. And the cases and decisions that were discussed in Caps were published opinions by this court. Those decisions are analogous to the issue today. Specifically, your honor, as you um, mentioned, the, the policy having immediate coverage, the argument that KinderCare has um, is without merit for two reasons. One, the random excerpts that were pulled for examination do not exemplify the policy in its entirety. And two, the policy in question contains language that explicitly states it is not a waiver of immunity. As to the excerpts KinderCare included in its brief, those cannot be interpreted in a vacuum. In fact, the policy language explicitly states 
on pages 97 and 117 of the Record on Appeal that individual provisions must be read in conjunction with the entire policy to determine what is covered and what is not. And most importantly, the language of the policy, which is on page 148 of the record, provides a clear directive that the policy does not waive government immunity. This language is similar to what the court uh, found in Magana versus Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education, Bullard versus Wake County, they had that same self-retention coverage trigger that the board or the entity must first pay whatever that amount is of self-retention before the policy is triggered. And additionally, in Henson versus Greensboro, this court found that the provision of the city's policy that explicitly stated it did not waive government immunity was indicative that the policy did not waive government immunity. The court compared the language of the policy. And as the court has this policy and question before it on the record, I would submit to the court that you would find the language to be substantially sim similar to policies in other cases where this court has found there is no waiver of immunity. Assuming arguendo that the court accepts KinderCare's position that there is coverage for the board just by having this policy, the board's immunity under 115C-42 remains intact because there is no immediate coverage for the specific torts in this matter. KinderCare points to auditing and surveying and even taking over the defense of a case. None of those are the claims that that the board is being sued for in this matter. The policy must cover the specific torts or negligence claim. As to both contribution and indemnity, these are equitable remedies that sound in tort. Yes, it is true that North Carolina law allows both contribution and indemnity where two or more persons are liable in tort or jointly and severably liable or joint tort feasors. However, because the board has the protection of government immunity, it cannot be a tort feasor, nor can it be negligent. As stated throughout the argument in our brief and here today, the board has not waived any claims of negligence by purchasing its excess policy. North Carolina General Statutes 1B subsection H does not allow for the board, local boards, excuse me, of education to be joined in contribution. As held in Teachy versus Coble Dairies, a case also mentioned by my colleague, this statute applies to tort claims against the state, not against local government. And as Ms. Root fully argued, the board is not a state nor a state agency, and therefore it retains its immunity. Finally, there can be no contribution or indemnity specifically for the administrative claims that uh, KinderCare raised as far as negligent bus routes, negligent training, those sorts of matters. They are not allowed under the Tort Claim Act per your ruling in Martinez. 
In conclusion, I would implore the court to follow the decisions outlined in the Caps versus Cumberland case and the reason that was summarized in those decisions and uphold the board's governmental immunity. We ask the following, that the court reverse the trial court's denial of the motion to dismiss and rule that the board has governmental immunity on the administrative negligence claims, contribution, and indemnity. And finally, that the court find that Rule 14C Impleter does not apply to local governments of education. And therefore, the superior court, excuse me, I, yeah, the trial court lacked jurisdiction over the bus operational claims. And if your honors have no further questions for me, I conclude. Thank you. All right. Thank you, counsel. Uh, we'll hear from the appellee. Good afternoon, your honors. I'm Dan Hansen. This is my law partner, Steve Meckler. And I'm here today on behalf of the third party plaintiffs, Appalee's Kinder Care Education LLC and Kinder Care Learning Centers LLC. I'm going to be referring to them uh, jointly as Kinder Care. And I will continue with what um, Ms. Root said. I'll, I'll refer to the appellant as simply the board. I may accidentally say CMS, but that's who I mean if I say CMS, the board. Um, I do want to make something crystal clear. Yes, we have brought a third-party complaint against the board for contribution and indemnity, but there are two separate theories that underlie those claims. One is that the board is liable vicariously for the negligent school bus operation of its school bus driver. The other has to do with claims or omissions by the board itself, not the driver for the negligent bus, uh, bus route design, for example. And I'm going to focus first in our argument on those claims that derive from the bus driver's negligent operation of, of a bus, because I think that there is some confusion uh, in some of the citations that I'm seeing from the board uh, where they're not addressing or citing any cases in the bus operation context, and that's very important in this case. And so the first thing that I want to uh, point out then is the relevant language that we're relying on in this case. I don't know if this is going to show up. Well. I hope it does. I just want to get the whole page. This is the relevant language, Your Honors, from 143-300.1a. Now. This isn't the entire Tort Claims Act. This is just part of it that concerns negligent operation of school bus cases. And I'm going to focus on the highlighted language first and then come back and get the stuff in the middle because that's important too. It says, the liability of such county or city board of education shall be in the same and in all respects as is provided in this article with respect to the tort claims against the state board of education except as here and after provided. So I asked your friend for the appellant about this statute. And, you know, I think you've made a very reasonable argument for why um, this means that, you should cons that we should treat the board as if it's the state board, which would mean under teaching in our case law that you can bring the third party claim in the court system. But what I heard from your friend is what I would describe as a reasonable 
argument for why that's not the case. And so I think the challenge for you is if we end up with two reasonable interpretations, two possibilities here, both reasonable, that you'll lose because we have to strictly construe it against sovereign immunity. So why is their argument so off base that yours must be right and theirs must be wrong? Your Honor, I wouldn't say that it's so off base. I'm just not sure that I completely understand it, and I mean no disparagement. What's funny about this is that your panel has said over and over again that the Tort Claims Act is clear and unambiguous. And so there should theoretically be a very obvious answer just by looking at the language. And I'm not going to stop there because I think when you look at the language of Rule 14C, as well as the contribution statute 1B-1H, and more importantly, the history of how this came about, I believe that our version, our interpretation of what this means is the one that makes more sense. It's the most fair for the parties. It's the most economical and efficient judicially and is in fact what the legislature intended. So we do need to get, would you agree that we need to get to being able to assure ourselves that it's a clear and unequivocal waiver of immunity, which means that we're going to strictly construe it and even strictly construing it still reach the conclusion that there's no immunity. Yes, you're absolutely right. You know, so there's an awful lot, you're asking us to do a fair bit of cross-referencing among several different provisions to get where we're trying to go. Is that a problem in your view that? I hope not, because I've, I'm going to rely heavily on a couple of Supreme Court cases that I believe give us some instruction so that you don't have to cite Mr. Hansen in your opinion. You can cite the Supreme Court. And the first case is Irving. It's Irving versus this very board, Charlotte Mecklenburg, a 2016 case. Wonderful case to read. And in that case, the Supreme Court had to make the decision about whether an activity bus driven by the football coach constituted a school bus so that a claim could be brought under this very statute right here on the Elmo. And ultimately, what the court said was an activity bus is different from a school bus. A school bus is special. Activity buses implicate the school board's governmental immunity, whereas a school bus implicates the school board's state or sovereign immunity. And that's pretty critical. That's a distinction that I haven't heard addressed yet today, but I definitely want to make that. And the reason is school buses are special. Up until 1955, the state of North Carolina and the State Board of Education exclusively operated the school buses in North Carolina and owned them. But in 1955, that changed, and they disclaimed certain responsibilities for school buses, but not entirely. One of the things they did was they said, you can't sue the state or the State Board of Education if a school bus is being operated negligently by a driver hired by the local board. But we're still going to allow you, Mr. Victim, to have a way to make that claim. And so that's why they, they enacted this statute. This was enacted in 1955, the same time of the school bus switchover. That way, if somebody is hurt by the negligent operation of a school bus, there's still a mechanism for them to proceed to get compensation. And my interpretation of this language, Your Honor, is that they intended that operation, that procedure to decide liability, be the same as it always had been before 1955. That is, the State Board of Education. If you look at the language that I didn't highlight, it talks about the defenses of the board, the amount of damages, 
the uh, award against the claimant, the procedure for filing, for hearing and determining the liability of the board. To me, I can't get any more clear that that means that if we're going to have the Board of Education and we're trying to decide if they're liable for a school bus case, we're going to do it the same way as if they were the State Board of Education. But couldn't you read this and think that the drafters of this legislation had in their minds the Industrial Commission, not, you know, the Absolutely, Your Honor, because at this time, Rule 14C didn't exist, and neither did the contribution statute 1B-1H. That didn't come along until years later, and there was no change to this. And as you've already surmised, Your Honor, the plain language of 14C, which I'll put here, says notwithstanding the provisions of the Tort Claims Act, meaning there's, there is jurisdiction before the Industrial Commission, not exclusive jurisdiction, by the way. The statute doesn't say exclusive jurisdiction. The state of North Carolina can be a third-party defendant, and in such cases, the same rules governing liability and limits of liability of the state and its agencies shall apply as is provided for in the Tort Claims Act. So that's saying, go look to the Tort Claims Act, to the language that I've already cited. I don't think there's an argument that if this, if, if a case were brought against the State Board of Education as a third-party defendant, they're impleted that way, that this statute would definitely let that happen. I mean, I haven't heard anybody argue to the contrary. And so if you look to this rule and compare it to the statute that I had up here before, it says you decide that local board's liability in a bus case, not in every case, Your Honors. We're not honors. We're not saying that, but in a bus case. You decide that just as if we're deciding the liability of the state board itself. Now, there's a couple of other goodies from uh, Irving that help us out as well. It says that even today, after the switchover in 1955, the state remains financially responsible for paying the damages of the school bus liability. It's a little more complicated than that. But whereas my opponents were suggesting that somehow that fact helped them, I, I think it helps us. It shows that the state is still involved. The state is still going to stroke the first check. That's 150000 The first 150000 has to be paid from the State Board of Education's money. And then there's a statute that talks about how you take care of all the overage in case the damages award is above 150. And ultimately, it comes down to the state budget director making a determination whether the local board should, in fairness, or has the resources to pay the entire thing. It's, a, it's not necessarily one way or the other, but still, for that first 150, the state is on the hook. The Irving Court also said that buses, school buses, are defined and managed by the General Assembly and the State Board. And it goes on to say that the states re still has retained so much control over school buses that, quote, the state has remained a functional part owner of school buses. It ended its opinion, Your Honors, by saying this. Speaking of 143-300.1, when we're talking about negligent operation of school buses, we are, in, we are talking about, quote, limited waiver of sovereign immunity, close quote. And so that's, those all help, I believe, Your Honor, in showing that there is a legislative continuity to the rule, to the contribution statute, 
to the school bus uh, tort liability statute says that in that context, we still want the determination of a local board's liability to be just as it was in the old days, under state, uh, as if the State Board of Education itself were defending. I guess the, th the question I have is so, um, you know, the way you've described it, if we then turn to the statute, and you know, 143.300.1 said, for purposes of school bus uh, tort cases, the county boards of education shall be treated as state agencies. It will be such an easy case. And it just doesn't, that's not quite what it says. And I'm just trying to understand if we can get to that language effectively says that, clear enough that we can say it's a waiver of immunity. Well, let me offer this. In Turner versus Gastonia Board of Education, it's a case that the, the board also cited. That case was decided in 1959, shortly after the uh, Tort Claims Act change occurred about school buses. Now, that case did not, it was not a bus case. The liability of the school board w arose out of the guy who was running a lawnmower and he hurt somebody. So it wasn't a bus case. And the court did not actually look to 143-300.1 in deciding that case because the injury occurred before the effective date of that change. Nevertheless, the court thought that it was important to mention that this had happened because they were like, okay, now there's a new way that you can uh, waive liability of a local school board. There's this new statute out here, and this is what they said about it. Quote, section 143-300.1, this section, effective July 1, 1955, amended the State Tort Claims Act by prescribing that claims against county and city boards for injuries shall be heard by the North Carolina Industrial Commission under rules of liability and procedure as provided with respect to tort claims against the State Board of Education. That was their, that's not, they're not quoting the statute, that's them quoting what their understanding is, and I believe that that's consistent with what we're saying. There's also other language in the Tort Claims Act that is uh, consistent with the position that we're taking. For instance, Your Honors, when there is a claim for school bus negligence operation, the statute, the TCA, also requires that the claim itself and all notices in that case must be sent to the State Board of Education. It also says that those notices and the claim itself have to go to the State Attorney General. It doesn't say it has to go to the school's local board attorney. It says that the State Attorney General can defend the local board. It goes on to explain that complex uh, formula that I told you about, they have to pay the first 150000 it also says that it is the attorney general, not the state board's local attorney, who has the power to settle and pay the awards for school bus operation liability. And then, of course, there's the affidavit itself. In order to institute that claim in front of the Industrial Commission 143-297, it says the state. Everywhere you look in that affidavit, the blanks to fill in are the state agency, the state employee, et cetera. It, there isn't a separate affidavit for local boards. And so our belief, Your Honor, is that the combination of 14C and this legislative history, the other language in the entire TCA show that the state is very much still involved in a school bus case. I'm not asking you to decide right now 
whether in all instances a local school board is an agency of the state. That's a pretty big ask, I know. I do know that as for our claims that are directly against the board, like for negligent school bus design, a route design, I would have to, in effect, be able to convince you that the, the state and the county board are one and the same, essentially, for that sort of claim to survive. And I understand that's a tall order. I believe in our brief we make some explanations about why it's feasible to go with our interpretation. For one, the state by constitution has a mandate to do all the publication, uh, all the public education. Um, but when it comes to bus cases, we think it's pretty clear that what we're asking for is not a big stretch. We're not asking you to expand the TCA. We're asking you to merely enforce the TCA Rule 14C and the contribution statute exactly as they're written. And I did hear reference to Tichy and Coble Dairies. Great case, simply says that the state and its agencies can be brought in as third parties, not before the Industrial Commission, but in state court as a contribution or common law indemnity third party defendants. That was not a bus case, by the way. And I would also like to point out, Your Honor, that as it says, oops, in this one, Rule 14C, when you bring in the state, whether it's a state agency or the state, or as we contend, a local school board in a school bus case, the limitations on the cap, the amount of liability, are still in place. It clearly says that at the end of Rule 14C. We're not contending that because the third party claim is in state court that somehow the million dollar cap on liability uh, doesn't apply or the uh, rules about who has to pay the damages don't apply. Those, of course, would still be in play. Um, Your Honor, let's talk about another reason why I think this is our reading is, makes a lot of sense, and it's the fairness and efficiency argument. So we as KinderCare, we get sued in state court. And a little girl hit by a car at a school bus across the street from our facility. You know, I, we're not really arguing the facts, but of the three potential parties who are liable, it seems like we're sort of the least in control of the situation. And the party that really ought to have to step up and answer for some of this is the school board. But since the case was brought in state, we can't do anything but try to implead them. Or I suppose we could split our claim, defend in the state court, go to the industrial commission and try to bring our claims for negligent bus driver operation there. But now look where we are. We're in two different tribunals. We have the distinct risk of having an inconsistent judgment, where in the state court, it may be that we, KinderCare, and perhaps the driver are solely and exclusively liable, but before the Industrial Commission, we establish that no, it's the school that's liable. And I don't know that we can even get the plaintiff in the Industrial Commission. I don't know. I think there's a potential joinder problem. We may suffer a dismissal there because it's impossible to join a party that is indispensable to the proceeding. If our interpretation of how all this works is correct, we don't have to worry about that. So I'm not, I'm not following on that. How would seeking some sort of indemnification or contribution in the Industrial Commission be hamstrung because of the inability to join plaintiffs? Because 
won't you just be there litigating those claims which your own potential liability will be determined in the in the state court proceeding but i won't we won't have the plaintiff before the industrial commission your honor I mean, maybe there was contributory negligence, for instance. I, we wouldn't have that defense. That wouldn't be available to us. There's also a potential problem of collateral estoppel. We're in both, we're in both tribunals. So if a fact is established in one tribunal, it could be used against us in the other. But that wouldn't be true of the driver of the car, wouldn't be true of the board, wouldn't be true of the plaintiff, because they're not stuck with feet in both tribunals. So there, there's no risk for collateral estoppel to them. And it seems let, like- Let me make sure I understand something. Sure. Is the driver, the bus driver going to remain, no matter what happens in this case, remain in the case in the, in the current state court proceeding as a party? I don't know, Your Honor. I mean, I, the appeal appears to be simply on behalf of the board. I don't know that the AG has made a, a case at all. But and isn't the, isn't, your theory on your third-party complaint on this issue, vicarious liability through the driver, or is there more on the, on the bus driving tort liability other than just the driver's own responsibility? No, it's exclusive. It's plain vanilla vicarious liability negligent operation of the school bus. So what defenses would the county board have in the industrial commission if this case goes to a verdict in the uh, so what I'm getting at is, isn't any uh, liability that they might have going to be resolved in the state court action? And then you could assert in the industrial commission that they now need to indemnify. It's been settled there. Uh, I'm, I'm not exactly sure which I'd have to, I didn't research this before coming in here, but there seems to me some form of collateral estoppel that could apply in that case, if it's vicarious liability through the determination with respect to the driver. Well, it doesn't it depend on which case ends up getting to, getting to that issue and deciding it first. Because it's possible in the industrial commission that the board could establish that, no, we don't, we don't have any liability. It was, and, and for that matter, maybe Kindercare doesn't either. It was exclusively the driver. But the driver may be able to prove the opposite in the state court case. Say that, no, I, I didn't do anything. You know, the, the, the stop arm didn't come off the bus or whatever his excuse is going to be. So I, I don't think that all defenses are necessarily available in both forums for all parties. And, and, and I guess one of the things that I want to say is, poor us, we didn't pick the forum. You know, we got sued in state court, and so now we got to make the best of it. We didn't cause this, but we do know that if we can implead the board and have their liability on the bus driver's negligence determined just as the statute says, we could get everything decided in one case because now the plaintiff in the state court would be allowed under Rule 14a to bring direct claims against the third-party defendant, the school board. So there wouldn't need to be a separate action in the Industrial Commission. Um, I've got a little bit of time left, and I can switch over and talk about the direct claims, meaning like the, the negligent school bus design, that sort of thing. And my understanding is correct that your these claims, your theory of uh, of waiver of immunity here relies entirely on the insurance 
waiver, or do you have another? Do you have a more? Okay, so explain to me what. No, I mean, I, I think you guys hurt me on Martinez that I can't make that. So yes, it is. I believe, Your Honors, that the claims based on vicarious liability of the negligence of the driver are waived because the Tort Claims Act says they're waived. That's the waiver. Don't need to, and there's plenty of cases that talk about, and they're both cited in both briefs, that insurance doesn't matter in that case. But yes, for claims that you know, are related to but aren't derived from the bus driver's acts or omissions, those other claims we would have to show, one, that we can bring them under 14C because it involves the state or an agency. And I don't have the tort claims language to, to help that one. I just have to convince you otherwise. And then if I convince you otherwise, I've got another hurdle, which is that I have to establish that the board's purchase of liability insurance constitutes the waiver. And so, as I had, as I had mentioned earlier, the so this case seems an awful lot like a long line of cases we've had that say there's no waiver through liability. So what's different in this case? I got two responses for you. And the first one is we, we explained in our brief that those cases talk about when does coverage trigger, okay? And so we pointed out several things in the policies themselves that suggest that there is coverage immediately that you don't have to spend the entire self-insured retention and have a tribunal decide that you're liable before the coverage kicks in, all right? And some of those things, like there's the possibility that the insurance carrier could reimburse the board for some of its investigation and its legal expenses, and to me, that sounds like indemnification. So I believe it would qualify under 115C-42. I don't think any court has decided that yet. I mean, I don't think that anyone has made the argument that there is some sort of coverage or, or indemnification that springs before payment of the self-insured retention and a finding of liability. So that's one, one argument. And the other argument is, Your Honor, we don't like those prior decisions. We just don't think they're fair to victims. And I stand here before you knowing full well that you can do nothing about it. You can't change what a prior panel says. I can only take it to the Supreme Court or ask an en banc panel to review it. And so we included it just to preserve it. And that's the best I can do on that one. Do you have any more questions? All right. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Any rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. Um, I will say that um, the board agrees. The board agrees with um, our friends on the other side that the Irving case is about financial responsibility. And one of the things from the Irving case, um, it, they talked about the difference between school and activity bus, as my my friend stated, and it talked about implicating sovereign immunity because the state is financially responsible for payment of judgments. Against local, um, against local boards, but then it distinguished and said, but the specific question it, of the commission, the industrial commissions, is subject matter jurisdiction is one of governmental immunity because the named party is the local board of education. So in that respect, Your Honor, I think that the financial responsibility 
being with the state in Irving, they still distinguished it from the local boards of education. And I would also like to put the language of, um, first I would like to put up the language. I don't know how to adjust that. Good. We can see it, yep. Okay, so this is uh, 143-299.4, which is um, payment of state excess liability. And it's this statute, Your Honor, that KinderCare cited when it said that the local board would have to put in money. But that is incorrect. If you read this statute carefully, it is the state agency shall transfer to the state budget. There is nothing in here about the local board of education. So the local board of education is not responsible for payment of any liability under the Tort Claims Act. If you go to 143, this is the language, I don't have it as neatly prepared as, as, as um, kinder care, but it cites this language right here about um, being uh, the liability and being in um, similar shall be asserted against the claim in the same way, except as here and after provided. And if you turn over here on section, subsection C, that last highlighted point, neither the county or city boards of education shall be liable for payment of any award made pursuant to the provisions of this section. And so the argument um, KinderCare's argument fails, Your Honor, when it says that the local board of education has to put their money in for this. And I think that's an important point because I think that's a large basis of their, uh, of their argument. And just because the state is still involved, it does not transform the local board of education into a state agency. And we do assert um, that that it would be exactly as, as this court stated in Martinez, it would be expanding the language. It would be expanding that language. Um, I would like to briefly um, talk about the judicial economy issue. And um, I did answer uh, Your Honor's question about um, whether they could still bring that in the Industrial Commission, and I agree under contribution. And indemnity, I'm not sure that negligence would have to be further established from the bus driver, at, in fact, I believe it would not be. And once the monetary cap is met under the Tort Claims Act, there would be no reason for contribution and indemnity in the um, Industrial Commission because the cap would have, would have been met. Um, I will say, though, I'll cite you to um, this court's opinion in Green versus Kearney in, 2000, in 2010, um, and it says, in, in that case, there were already two cases. One was trying to be brought in the trial court and one was already in the Industrial Commission. But they said, um, moreover, even, and I think what this means is even if there was not something in the Industrial Commission, the tort claims out sets out the parameters of the state's waiver of sovereign immunity. Here, the state has not consented to be sued in the trial court and we cannot set aside statutory restrictions even in the name of judicial economy. And under the um, Rule 14C um, and under what, what we claim as the um, legislative intent with the combination of the Tort Claims Act and, and Rule 14C, 
I believe that the local boards of education have not consented to be sued in the trial courts. I don't believe the General Assembly intended for that to happen, and I don't think those can be changed just in the name of judicial economy. And one very small point on the excess coverage and um, my friend's Kinnaker's argument on that. Um, the, as Ms. Woods argued when she was up here, the um, types of claims of the excerpts he brought out for potential being reimbursed fees, those are only for claims that are, that are covered. Um, we have excess, the board has excess coverage. That excess policy is for claims other than tort claims. It's not just about tort claims. It is clear from the language in the coverage that, um, in the excess coverage, that uh, this type of claim does not waive governmental immunity. Um, I see that I am out of my time, and um, I ask that you reverse the trial court's ruling and the other things that we've argued in our brief and in oral argument today. Thank right. you. Thank you, counsel. We thank you both for your arguments. And we'll adjourn and return for a ceremonial session. Mr. Clerk. All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is now adjourned.